Lord God, who has given your scriptures for our instruction, for the softening of our spirits, and for the transformation of our lives, we pray that you would cause your word to dwell in us richly. For Jesus' sake, amen. You may be seated. C.S. Lewis is known for many books, many memorable and iconic quotes, but one that came to mind during my prep for this sermon was from his book, The Weight of Glory, in which he said these words, Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That last line, we are far too easily pleased. It's the, the complete opposite of that comes through in Psalm 66, which is our sermon passage for today, which you can find in your Bibles or on page 7 and 8 of our bulletin. And it's this psalm that hits us like a thunderbolt, just upsetting the apple cart and helping us to see, yes, we settle for so much less. Because what we see here is a psalmist who is joyfully shall we say, pulverized by the blessedness and the breathtaking nature of God. How different from so much of what we try to pull off, where we are pleased with finding meaning in political upsmanship on social media, in different quibbles in our own conversations, uh, in things that we pursue uh, without thanksgiving for the gifts of God. And God offers us so much more. We might put it this way. We desire too quickly a nibble of cheese puffs when we could have a seven-course royal feast. So the antidote is what we have here in Psalm 66. And there's a problem with this psalm, as I discovered when I started looking through it. It's not structured as so far as I can see traditionally. So this is going to be a what we might call a jumbled mess of a sermon, maybe not uh, some crisp points uh, and traditional structure. But what I'm going to offer is one message developed by two themes, and closing with three applications. I know that sounds like a Ponzi scheme, but try to put that out of your heads. So what is that one message that comes through here? It's what we find when we encounter God. It's what the psalm here is about. Verses uh, th uh, verse, uh, 3 uh, and 4. 
uh, really get at uh, the key portion of this psalm. How awesome are your deeds, we are compelled to say to God. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. Imagine that picture. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. If anything, we're not too far out of the gate in this psalm before we come upon what God is all about here. God drops jaws. <laughs> Everything he does, if we, can, if we consider not just what is said in this psalm, but put against the backdrop of all he has done, in the creation, in the fashioning, in the establishment of the world in which he works, everything he is doing here, he does while in holding up the entirety of time and space on the tip of his finger. All by his word and by his power. It brings to mind Hebrews chapter 1 where we are told the very speech of God, the intention of God constructed the ages of existence, which are just in the palm of his hands. Even God's enemies, it says, so great is your power, your enemies come cringing to you. God's enemies know that they disdain him, yet they also know they are hopeless before him. The power and the awesomeness of God is there. To such a degree that all the earth, says, worships you. All the nations. See, even here in the Old Testament, where sometimes people say the focus is always on Israel. It's just this little nation of Israel. Yes, but even then, we see this broadening view that eventually all the earth, the nations, God is bringing in every tribe and nation and tongue and language and culture. There's going to be global desire for the reach of God's grace to sing praises to his name, to lift up and dwell in the surpassing enjoyments of God's blessed and breathtaking character. So that is the message in a nutshell uh, from Psalm 66. And the way the psalmist wants us to pull this into ourselves, first of all, in a couple of thematic ways, um, comes first in a cluster of verses 5 through 7, and then 16 through 19. First, he says, come and see. In other words, take notice of what God has done in your life. Take some inventory. Write stuff down, but, but notice and take it into yourselves. And what kind of things has God done? That does beg the question. But it says in verse 5, He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land a couple of times at least when God's people were leaving servitude in Egypt and finally making that jailbreak into the wilderness the Red Sea or at least a portion of it was standing in their way and God said there you go there's your path through and not only that when they entered the promised land and they're facing the Jordan River under Joshua 
And not only that, it is at springtime, the spring rains have come, the Jordan River is going downhill, it is a raging torrent, and God says, let's revisit that trick again. And he makes a way across. Stunning! You would not be able to forget that. At least one would think you wouldn't be able to forget that, although God's people have a way of doing that. But the psalmist goes on, They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, comprehensively. Also in verse 7, Whose eyes keep watch on the nations. He is exalted above the nations, but his sight, his vision is so crystal clear, he notices everything that goes on in his creation. And so therefore, bless our God, O peoples, that the sound of his praise be heard. Awe-inspiring actions, yes. Now maybe God has not, you know, done those thunderbolt things. Guess what? It's okay. Because there are also the ordinary things that God does in his grace, in his care for us. Verse 9, who has not kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. Like, what does that mean? Well, it means that God enables for you to wake up in the morning. He gives you the strength to brush your teeth. He gives you the strength to have breakfast. He gives you the bank account where you can have breakfast. If you have a job uh, and, and transport to that, he, he, that is a gift from God. You're like, those. that's just ordinary, everyday stuff. Yes, I know. And it's from the hand of God. And sometimes we tend to overlook the ordinary things and the ordinary gifts of God. It's very easy to do that. Uh, John Witherspoon, uh, he was the president of what became Princeton University. He was also a signer of the Declaration of Independence and I believe a Presbyterian pastor. He lived about two miles from uh, his office at Princeton in a rural community called Rock Hill, New Jersey. And one day he was in his study at the college and a neighbor from Rock Hill came bustling in, nearly tore the hinges off the door, and a breathless voice exclaimed, Dr. Witherspoon, you must join me in praising God for his mighty providence. In delivering me, I was on my way from Rock Hill. The horse spooked. The buggy went off the road and was smashed against a tree, but I escaped unharmed. To which Witherspoon quietly and wisely replied, Why, I can tell you a far more remarkable providence than that. I have driven down that road hundreds of times. My horse never spooked. My buggy was never smashed. And I was never harmed. Sometimes we think that God is only up to something in our lives when he's making a racket. And that is not necessarily the case. We need to give thanks for the ordinary as well as the extraordinary goodness and blessings of God. But he also says in, in verse 16 to come and hear. First of all, we have to take notice to see what God is up to but to hear, to listen in, 
to, to the verbalization of others who share the goodness of God and also to be willing to verbalize ourselves. The goodness of God must be communicated. We can only hear if others are telling. Others can hear only if we are telling. So what do we notice about God? I will tell you what he has done for my soul. Verse 17, I cried to him with my mouth. High praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. What the psalmist is saying is, if I'm mired in sin and it's unrepentant sin, I have no desire to turn from it, then of course God should give me a deaf ear. But he says, but truly God has listened. I want you to hear, he says, that God has heard me. He has attended to, this is an interesting turn of phrase. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. It doesn't say he has attended to the words of my prayer or the exact requests of my prayer or to my particular urgings or quasi demands of my prayer. It doesn't talk about the specific. He attends to the voice of my prayer. And that means that we have a God. And we can tell others that we have a God. And we can hear from others about how they have a God who may not say yes to all the specifics. But who leans into the person praying and knows them. Would you rather have someone, I ask you, who is going to give you everything you ask for and stay at a distance, or would you be known by someone who knows the best for you? To me, I mean, there's, there's a first desire and there's a very distant second there. What we see here is there is no other option for the follower of Jesus that we have in this psalm given to us other than a God who loves our prayers, a God who loves his people and who loves to love his people. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Why would God do that unless he did not have a tender love for his people. And so willingly, we must be willing to hear that from others and come in here, invite people to come and hear it from us. So to notice what God has done, but also to be willing to communicate the goodness of God in our lives. Now, I've, those are the two themes. I've promised you three applications, um, which uh, you're probably thinking, hallelujah, because this means we're making progress. Um, that's, you know, words that preachers say, or, or, you know, people pick up on that. Like when a pastor says, well, finally, you, you, you take comfort in that, because you know the preacher's going to be final, whereas if they say lastly, they're going to last. Okay. Well, three applications. Uh, and and we, we see, I'm just going to alphabetize these a little bit. 
uh, we see, first of all, uh, and th this, this is coming out of uh, a lot of come and see what God has done, uh, there is the remembrance of God's provision. We, we are called to do that on a regular basis, to inventory God's actions on our behalf. The great, the small, all points in between. Uh, and, and you wonder why, you know, the psalmist, and everywhere in scripture comes back to this. Uh, and, and sometimes we feel like we're little league baseball players and our coach is giving us instructions for the 764th time. And the reason why is because we forgot it the 763rd time. Again, uh, th this is so easy to, 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 uh, to, to leave by the side of the road. Um, and, but but uh, to remember it, uh, to, to bless our God, uh, to let the sound of his praise be heard because, and to specify what has been done. And, and maybe you've got a good memory and you can recall to mind certain things, both extraordinary and ordinary. Maybe you have to journal those things, whether on, uh, in, in a written journal or an electronic journal, whatever is the case. But what the psalmist urges us to see is remember, God provides and he provides for a reason not only to uphold us, but to help us remember that we are dependent upon him and all our trust and all our faith and all our hope is in him and how desperately we need to see this every moment of every day. What is your method to help you recall God's provision in the past so that you might face the future with more trust in him? Well, there's also, and hidden in here, no, not hidden, it's in, it's in black and white right there in the text, but one, one area I do want to take some time in uh, is uh, verses 10 through 12, because this is, what, where we can, what we can apply here is that as followers of Jesus, it is important as we go on our journey of life to bring a certain resolve during times of God's perplexity. Now, we don't like to put the word perplexity with God. We like God to make sense. We like to say, God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, and we like to think that that plan is crystal clear and joyous and strawberries and cream. Okay? Sometimes it's sawdust and motor oil, which doesn't taste too good, as my Uncle Glenn can tell you, that's a different story. But following a God, following the God of the universe, who has redeemed us in Christ and blessing him for his glorious actions, as we are compelled to do, does not remove the difficulties from our daily steps. Verse 10, for you, Oh God, have tested us. Isn't that strange? Just two verses before we were being told, bless our God, O oh peoples. Verse 10 says, you, O oh God, have tested us. It's not you have allowed challenges to come. No, God has done the testing. You have tried us as silver is tried. You know what silver has to go through to get all the impurity? It has to go through fire. 
It has to be melted. All, all sorts of stuff. Verse 11, you. We, we didn't find our way into the net. We didn't get caught. You brought us. And doesn't that perplex you? You laid a crushing burden on our backs. How is the psalmist able to say this in the midst of such praise? You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and went through water. Now, we don't have the time to go through all the particulars of the equation of how blessing God and going through trials from God dovetail perfectly together. All I can say is there are going to be times, and you don't have to go very far in life as a follower of Jesus to recognize there are times that God does not seem to be a refuge in times of trouble, as Psalm 46 tells us. And sometimes we can look at Lamentations 3 when Jeremiah says, Your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And we're looking around and looking at the rubble of our lives and thinking, whatever river of God's mercies are out there seems to have dried to a trickle. And that's on a good day. It was John Calvin who... Um, uh, when, when he left Geneva uh, and went to Strasbourg uh, in the Holy Roman Empire, he had some time of ministry there, and he met a woman, uh, a widow named Idolette. He married her, uh, and uh, they went back to Geneva where he ministered there very faithfully. Well, um, Idolette became uh, pregnant. They had a baby boy named Jacques who lingered for about a month but was born very uh, premature and sickly, and he died. Uh, later on, uh, she, uh, she, she miscarried uh, their second child, and then he was looking forward to the birth of another child and wrote to a friend about his anticipation, and then that boy died as well. And finally, in 1549, the plague swept through Geneva, and Idolette was caught in its pincers, and she perished as well. So three children died in infancy, he loses his wife of some, uh, not, not even a decade, the dearest companion in his life. And Calvin wrote to a couple of friends these words. He said, truly mine is no ordinary grief. I do what I can to keep myself from being overwhelmed with grief. May the Lord Jesus support me under this heavy affliction which would certainly have overcome me had not he who raised up the prostrate strengthens the weak and refreshed the weary, stretched forth his hand from heaven to me. What is Calvin saying? He's saying that the God who allowed such tragedy and sadness and grief to infiltrate into the deepest recesses of John Calvin's heart was nonetheless the God who stretched forth his hand in mercy to bring him grace, to bring him comfort in time of need. And that's where we get the end point of verse 12. Yet you have brought us out out of all of that perplexity to a place of abundance. It doesn't mean, by the way, let's not 
read too much into this. It does not mean that after you go through the crushing and burdens of life, that all of a sudden, cha-ching, you're going to end up with $20 million in your bank account. That is not the place of abundance that is being talked about here. But what God is saying is, my ways can be perplexing, but I do not let go of you. I am the God who leads you into trials. I am the God who leads you out of those trials. In fact, sometimes the surest way, and my father has said this before, the surest way to know that God is still with you is not that you are through successfully through your trial, but that you are standing on your feet by his grace in the middle of it. See, the God who allows burdens to fall upon us is the God who relieves us of their crushing weight. God says, I am the one who, yes, I will allow others from time to time to stand against you, but I am the God who is for you. Remember, he listens to the voice of your prayers. Can you take that perplexity of God's being and activity and go on trusting him nonetheless in the Holy Spirit's strength to recognize the God who baffles us is the God who tenderly loves us. Can you hold that intention? Part, part of a uh, what, what, whatever the word is I'm looking for, a uh, part of a growing uh, sense of increasing grace, of sanctification, of growth and holiness, is being able to keep those things in tension. And then very briefly, and we, because we have uh, dealt with this already, recommitment to prayer and we could say prayer and worship is really what's being talked about here we have a we can talk about this being the specific need approach of prayer our need our praise our confession our response to god who truly listens verse 19 truly god has listened he has attended to the voice of my prayer and then verse 20 he has not rejected my prayer God loves when his children climb in his lap and unload their hearts. Is that the vision of God that you have today? The one who truly listens. Is that our response? Prayer and worship. Because we have sing the glory of his name, give to him glorious praise from verse 2. Because God is for us in our perplexity. Because God has provided, he is worthy of our coming to him in our time of need as we seek his mercy. So all of this, it's in a way, and I'm sure I haven't helped because it's just seemed more like a gushy mess than anything. But Psalm 66, trust me, does reveal our glorious God who will not leave us, who is for us who acts on our behalf and who treasures us is a God who protects us by his love.
Every once in a while you get an indication of that in everyday life. Um, when I was much, much younger, um, my high school years, college years, and um, even on into, into graduate school and so on, uh, my mother picked up the, the habit, the hobby, uh, the some might call the addiction of quilting by hand, lap quilting. Uh, and, and so she would uh, she would uh, get her own material, piece uh, piece things together, and square by square she would construct a quilt. It's sort of a dying art, uh, one would say. Uh, but she would do that uh, at all times uh, when, when she would just be sitting around watching a football or a basketball game on TV. Uh, one thing when it was really noticeable is she would bring along her quilt on family vacations in the car. And so she would have the, the, this gigantic quilt uh, spread out sometimes uh, in front of her and she would just um, uh, pee, be piecing it together, working on it, and so on. It, it would seem to take up a, a good chunk of the living space in the car. Uh, well, you know, when you're on vacation and you're, you're my mom and my dad, three boys, you would have to stop to eat every so often. So we would get out of the car, Burger King or, uh, or, or, uh, or, or whatever, Long John Silver's, and um, we'd be going in and mom would always remind dad out loud, because mothers always do that with, with fathers, um, out loud in the middle of the parking lot, Ralph... Did you remember to lock the door? I don't want people stealing my quilts. <laughs> now, you have me at the age of 16, Seth at 14, Joel at 10. What do you think all three boys did? Yeah, that, that, that was on a good day. Hide our face, roll our eyes, just want to hide anywhere from that. It was, it, because we thought it was preposterous. Of all things, why would someone want to break into a car and steal a quilt? That was our knee-jerk response. But looking back, in the fullness of time, now that I've acquired a little bit of maturity since then, I can see mom's point. The quilt was precious to her. She hated to leave it. She was for her quilt. She had acted upon it. She had worked on it. She treasured her quilts. Nothing was going to take that from her. And through that, as I look back on this, I get a little bit of a picture of God in Psalm 66. Where we see a God who is for us. Who treasures us. Who stands by us, our glorious God, who protects us in all things. Surely that is a God worthy of our very appropriate response to him. Amen. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you in the power of the Holy Spirit for your grace and glory shown to us, your people. Grant us, we pray, the determination to remember your provision, to follow you in times of perplexity, and to lift you up in prayer and worship all our days. This prayer we make in the name of your Son, our Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior, and most certainly our brother as well.
Amen.